Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, y'all got really quiet in a hurry. But that's okay. You slam the door. <laughs> you do, you slam the door and That does it, huh? Okay. We don't want to miss a word. Oh, okay. Well, we've got some good words today, so that's uh, good to see you. Good to, good to see you today and good to uh, be back with you. Appreciate Russ uh, filling in a couple of weeks ago. Russ, did you do uh, Psalm 42? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm looking. It's not worth it. No, I'm, I know it is. And then, uh, parts. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate Rob Dorman uh, last week, and <clears throat> I, I, I uh, look forward to listening to these these lessons. Usually, I'll do that when I exercise, and and this may sound a little unusual, but I'd rather hear a lesson from a teacher here in our church than from well, you just named some wonderful guy, John Piper or John. Uh, whoever, you know, because I, <clears throat> I believe this is where God teaches us, and I'm a member of this body, so He's going to give men words for me that I need to hear. So I look forward to uh, to that. <clears throat> so thank you, Russ and, and Rob, too, for for filling in. Well, we're studying the uh, Old Testament wisdom literature, and we just really got started uh, last or three, well three weeks ago now. So I want to do a little more introductory concept today. In fact, just one, one real important concept, and that is I want us to, to spend this time talking about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his relationship to, to wisdom. And I think that's really important as we, as we begin this study, which is going to be for several months, this study of, uh, of wisdom literature, how important it is for us to to understand our Lord Jesus Christ, his, what, what role he plays in the idea of, of wisdom. And I want to try to paint maybe four pictures for you today. I hope I can get that right. I've been working on this for, for four weeks now, and I'm still working on that. I remember I had a professor at, in, uh, at school, and he would always rush in late, kind of, I mean, like one or two minutes after the class began. And, and so um, he'd always say, I just, I just want to keep learning and keep uh, growing. And so that's why I do that right up to the last minute before the, you know, before the class begins. And that's kind of the way I feel about this idea of wisdom, and particularly about the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is in wisdom. So I'm going to try to do four things today, then we'll, we'll pray. Um, thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ and wisdom, wisdom literature, um, I want to talk about the idea of progressive revelation, that concept. I want to just look at, at Jesus as a teacher, as an Israelite, and his uh, understanding of wisdom and how it shows up in his teaching. And then I want to look at a passage in First um, Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul does a, a beautiful thing about wisdom and the gospel, the gospel of Christ. And then if we have time, I want to talk about uh, how Christ and the gospel, how, how the wisdom of Christ and the gospel uh, is beautiful. Talk about the beauty of Christ and the gospel. So those are four big things. I, I hope that we'll be able to uh, accomplish that uh, today. So let's pray. And we'll begin. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blessing and grace and joy to be together with these brothers and sisters in the room today. And we thank you for your word that you've given to us. You've left it for us. Uh, you've inspired it for us to equip us and we might know you through it. And Lord, today, my great hope and desire is that we would see the Lord Jesus and see how glorious and beautiful he is as we think about wisdom. So please come and minister to us by your word. And may we see him high and lifted up today. And we pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> Just to kind of give us a little bit of context of, 
of uh, where we have been. I just gave you these four points that we kind of covered three weeks ago about wisdom. I'm not going to go over them, but I want to mention them because they all kind of intertwine with this, with this idea of the Lord Jesus Christ and where He is in the, in the understanding of wisdom. So I'll just read them for you. Uh, wisdom is concerned with the general order and pattern of living in God's creation. And we looked at how uh, the wisdom literature really does find its foundation, its basis in the creation story. <clears throat> and remember this uh, statement, wisdom gazes out to observe the order of creation and gazes in to tune our lives to the pattern of God's created order. And we can look back at Genesis 1 through 3 about marriage and about uh, work and sin and temptation and wisdom uh, when we're wise we're conforming our lives to the order that's in that's in creation and then one that's really obvious is that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord um, Proverbs 9 10 the fear of the Lord uh, there's no true wisdom without the fear of the Lord wisdom is not just a not just a list of philosophical ideas or good you know good principles to live by uh, wisdom as the as we see here wisdom begins with a humble submission uh, to the lord we talked about this unusual idea called ethical monotheism and how it separated israel from the rest of their pagan neighbors because they had multiple gods and they had all kinds of ideas about wisdom but israel was unique because their their only source for wisdom uh, was God, was, was Yahweh. And then, uh, number three, wisdom provides discernment for a particular order and circumstances in our lives. And I think it's a, a, a beautiful thing. <laughs> i got to speak up, don't I? It's a beautiful thing to realize that there's order in creation. And so, therefore, we know that God will provide order for our disordered lives. And that's what wisdom is, isn't it? And so we ask God for wisdom, um, like James 1.5 says. And then we looked at uh, wisdom is grounded in the theology and imagery of Genesis 1 through 3. We looked at it like two paths, two trees, two forces, um, two women. We looked at the lady wisdom and then the strange adulterous uh, woman and how how see those two voices in Genesis, but then we see where, um, where Solomon brings those out in the, in the book of Proverbs, and those two ideas are throughout the wisdom literature. Well, let's look now at this first idea of Christ <clears throat> uh, being the ultimate expression of wisdom. And let's think about this idea of, of um, progressive revelation. <clears throat> Usually we talk about the idea of progressive revelation when we think about the sufficiency of Scripture. And the, the point of progressive revelation means that, that God has always provided just what His people need to know Him and to walk with Him. He reveals Himself to them. So God revealed some things to, uh, uh, to Adam in the book you know, in, in Genesis and then maybe to Noah. He revealed a little bit more to Abraham, he revealed a little bit more. To David, more. The point is that uh, he reveals more and more about himself uh, as we go through the as we go through the Scripture. <clears throat> and so, revelation and uh, redemption go together. So think about that for a minute. Oftentimes, God reveals Himself through acts of redemption. Now let's think about one that's really easy to see. That would be the the deliverance from uh, the Is from the Israelites delivered from from Egypt in the Passover. That was an act of redemption. But look at the beautiful revelation God made of Himself through that act of redemption. Look at what all we learned about God through the Passover and through the deliverance of of the children of Israel from um, from Egypt. And so, <clears throat> revelation and redemption uh, go together. They function together. And you could look at other acts of redemption, like maybe the return of the, uh, 
uh, of the Israelites from captivity in Babylon and things like that. That's an act of redemption, but, the, but God also reveals himself in those acts of redemption. But his final revelation of himself, of his truth, is in the final act of redemption, and that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 1. I just want you to see this. one, I just want to read uh, verses one through uh, four. And I want you to notice now, you, you read carefully as I read, notice um, that God's last word of revelation is through the Lord Jesus, and his last word of redemption is through the Lord Jesus. Okay, so notice that. <clears throat> Long ago at many times, this is Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So you see those two things. God, in, in the Old Testament, he, he revealed himself through, in lots of different ways to the, uh, to the Old Testament people. But in these last days, he's revealed himself finally just in one way, through his son. <clears throat> and Jesus provided the last act of redemption. See that? Um, in verse, uh, at the end of verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does that imply when he sat down? He's finished. He's done, right, he's finished. In fact, uh, didn't he say words like that in John 19? At the end of his life, he said, it is finished. So notice how these two things come together in our Lord Jesus Christ. The final act of redemption and the final act of God's revelation, they merge together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, that's got lots of broader application than just in wisdom, but uh, just to realize that now God has completed his revelation to us uh, through his word, and he's completed his salvation for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point I just want to leave you with, with this as we think about wisdom that um, that in Christ the last his last revelation of himself I mean, there's no new revelation about God okay you understand that whoever may uh, uh, say they went to heaven and came back and saw something new about God don't believe that there's no new revelation about God we don't need uh, the book of Mormon to tell us something new about God we don't need the book of the Quran or anything else uh, anybody that says that they've learned something that, about God that's not in the Scriptures, uh, don't listen to them. That's a dangerous place to be because he's completed his revelation through Christ. Um, but here's my point. I just want to leave you with this, and that is that, that in the same way that, that Christ is the last word of revelation in general, he's the last word on wisdom. All of God's wisdom is wrapped up in Him. We're going to see that as we, as we go along. Okay, any question about the idea of progressive revelation? It's a good, it's a good concept to know about. Okay, so now let's look at the Lord Jesus and um, how He taught in the tradition of, of wisdom. <clears throat> you know this, but I want, I want you to think about this for a minute, about the book of Proverbs. Who's the primary author of the book of Proverbs? Solomon. And what was his primary role in Israel? He was a king. All right. Who did he write the book of Proverbs to? His son. Yeah, who said that? Yeah, right, Isabel. He wrote, 
if you look at uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 9, he said, My son. So who's he talking to? Who was his son that he's referring to? Well, I think we could say it was Rehoboam. Remember Rehoboam? He was the son that, that took over um, <clears throat> after, Solomon's, uh, after Solomon's death. Um, how did Rehoboam do on this wisdom? He didn't do well at all, did he? And most of the kings didn't do too well. Now we had some bright spots, you know, that seemed to follow, follow uh, wisdom. But uh, Rehoboam didn't do well. In fact, we're going to see this next week as we begin to get into the book of, of uh, Proverbs, uh, the structure of it. And when we get to the end, we find out nobody's done this well. But, uh, so it kind of leaves you waiting, looking. There must be some prince or some king that's coming that's going to get this right. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I guess you could say that Christ is the true wise Israelite. Or Christ is the true prince that in his incarnation on earth, how he followed wisdom and became a king, in a sense. You've you got to be careful how you press the imagery too much. But just think about um, Luke 2.52. Remember, that was after Jesus had uh, disappeared uh, when he was 12 years old, and they had to go find him, you know. And, and, and uh, at this point, in this verse, it says, and he, he submitted himself to his parents, and uh, he increased in wisdom and uh, in stature and in favor with, with God and man. So he's the true Israelite. He's the true king that shows this wisdom in his life. But I want to look at uh, just an example of his teaching of wisdom. And let's look at uh, Matthew uh, chapter 5 through 7. And as you know, Matthew 5 through 7 uh, is the Sermon on the Mount. And when you think about the things we've been learning about wisdom, and as we learn more and more, you're going to see that the Sermon on the Mount is a document of wisdom. It's, and it just draws so much on these, the Old Testament idea of wisdom. Uh, Jesus was a teacher of wisdom. It's, in fact, if you, if you look at the, uh, the framework that Mark put it in, uh, if you see in Matthew 5, uh, verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then look at the end of, of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So Matthew packages this up as a, as a lesson in wisdom. So there's lots of wisdom ideas in here. Um, that, that really do harken back to the Old Testament idea of wisdom, like poetry and Hebrew parallelism. We see that in the, in the uh, Beatitudes, uh, chapter 5, uh, 2 through 10. Um, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's a poetic uh, concept. Uh, lots of imagery and symbolism. What are, what's some of the imagery and symbolism in the Sermon on the Mount? There's a bunch of it. In fact, almost the whole thing is imagery, uh, imagery and symbolism. Salt. Yeah, salt and light, right? Okay. I've given you a couple of those there. Uh, or real radical stuff like if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. <clears throat> so lots of symbolism. Then there's examples from creation. Um, particularly in his, in his lessons on anxiety. Remember, he says, um, look at the, the, the birds of the air, consider the lilies of the field. So he's, he's drawing on creation, saying learn from the order of creation. And, and um, you know, kind of like we saw about that earlier, uh, wisdom looks out and sees the order of creation. It looks in and orders our lives <clears throat> based on creation. And then he has these, uh, the, in chapter 7, he has these uh, two gates, two ways. Uh, let's just look at that for just a moment. 
So um, in chapter 7, verses, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So here he's entering into that whole idea of wisdom. There's two pathways. There's two, uh, there's two gates. And then uh, it talks about two trees. A, a good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears, uh, bears bad fruit. But look at the last one <clears throat> there at the end. Um, his last comparison in chapter 7, verse 24. <clears throat> and Jesus says some amazing things here about wisdom. <clears throat> so here's his final comparison. Hello, Rob. Oh, hello. We, uh, thanks for calling me out. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to call you out to publicly thank you for teaching last week. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, we've already done that, but we wanted you to hear it. So we're in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse uh, <clears throat> 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So here he, at the end of this, this treatise on wisdom, he draws it all together and he has the, this uh, contrast between a wise man and a foolish man. And he uses the imagery of a foundation. What sets apart the wise man from the foolish man? I know. Okay. He, he hears and he acts on what he hears. <clears throat> but notice uh, what Jesus is saying about his own words. If any man hears, hears these words of mine, now, Perhaps he's talking about all the words he'd just spoken in the in the uh, um, in the Sermon on the Mount. But notice what he's saying here. What we saw last or three weeks ago, as we talked about wisdom, the only source of true wisdom is from Yahweh, from the words of Yahweh. So notice what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, "My words are the words of wisdom." I am. He's t he's really claiming deity for himself here, and so he's boiled it all down to say that the, that the essence of wisdom is hearing what he has to say and then patterning our lives on what he has said. So he's making us an amazing claim that now he's the new, he's the new word of wisdom uh, for God's people. Well, so we've looked at Jesus as, as the final revelation of God and the final word of wisdom of God. Now, he was a wise man. Oh, let's see. I want you to see one other thing. Well, uh, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So why were they astonished? What made him different from the, the other? Karen? He spoke with authority. So how did they sense that? What what was the evidence of that, do you think? Okay. But he spoke with wisdom, didn't he? And <clears throat> wisdom is when we align our lives with the reality of, of the created order. And so all through this sermon, he's done that. He is, He's spoken with authority because in his wisdom... Uh, what he had to say to them lined up with what they see in the in the creation. Um, and let's just turn over to chapter thirteen. <clears throat> so 
So this is after he was rejected at, at Nazareth uh, in Matthew 13, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his house, to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So the second point I want you to see as we think about Jesus and wisdom is that he was the he was a consummate teacher of wisdom, but now we see he is the source of wisdom himself. It's his word uh, that makes us wise. Okay, <clears throat> the third thing I would like to talk about is uh, what the Apostle Paul says about wisdom and the gospel in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. So let's go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. this passage to you and we don't have time to do a lot of commentary on it but I've given you some thoughts here <clears throat> under point B uh, the wisdom of the world that is religion and philosophy cannot bring people to know God the wisdom of God was salvation through a weak crucified savior and simple faith in that message God's purpose was to exclude all boasting of men except in himself and then we'll look at the, the summary conclusion in just a moment so Obviously, this is at the beginning of um, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, and their church was a mess. I mean, it was a disaster what was going on there, and the thing he begins with is talking about the division that's in their church. And they're divided over personalities, and they're, they're very, they, they like Greek uh, philosophy and Greek wisdom. And, and so Paul now comes, and, um, and he's going to bring them uh, the truth that will bring unity uh, to this church. <clears throat> so this passage that I want to read for you, I think I'll just read 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through uh, 31. But just notice it is a wisdom passage. And I want you to notice how Paul connects wisdom to the gospel uh, in this passage. <clears throat> so just uh, listen as I read. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Christ, uh, for, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? And where is the scribe? And where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So here we see, I think, an amazing passage that God, uh, that Paul equates 
the wisdom of God uh, with the message of salvation. And it's foolishness, of course, to the world, to those that are perishing. Uh, they can't see it. But for us, that God has given us eyes to see, uh, we see the wisdom of God in the message of salvation. And notice kind of this conclusion in verse 30. He says, because of him, that is because of God, from him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So here again, we see the Lord Jesus is the essence of wisdom from God's perspective. And notice what he says, what's included in this wisdom, uh, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Uh, the Greek, the Greek people that I looked at said you could really put a colon after wisdom from God, with the point being that the next three words describe what this wisdom is. And look at what, um, look at what these three words are. They really are the gospel, aren't they? Righteousness would be justification, the righteousness that Christ imputes to us. And sanctification, of course, is the, the, the growth that we have in, to become uh, in the image of Christ. And then redemption is that final deliverance, uh, you know, at the end of time. So this is glorification. So, so Christ has become our wisdom, and the wisdom that we have in Christ is the gospel. It is... Um, it is justification, sanctification, and glorification. So, I heard I read another fellow here that, <clears throat> and he harkens back to the whole idea of wisdom from the Old Testament. There is no such thing as wisdom apart from covenant relationship with God, that is righteousness, that leads to holy living, sanctification, made possible by God's act of delivering us uh, from slavery, that's redemption uh, through the cross. So here's the point that I'm trying to help us to see is that as we think about wisdom and and looking, so what, what we're doing now, we're looking at wisdom from the perspective of the New Testament. That's this whole idea of progressive revelation. We can understand things about wisdom now that we couldn't understand that Solomon had no clue about because the final revelation has come in Christ and it's come in the gospel. So here's my encouragement to you and we'll, I think we'll see this in the next point that as we look at wisdom we should look at it through the lens of the gospel. So let's just let me just leave that with you there and go on to this next point. I think you'll see how it, how it comes together. I'd like to talk with you just for a few minutes about the idea of beauty, the beauty of wisdom in Christ and the cross. Um, when you think about, you know something that's, when you see something and you think it's beautiful, what is it about that item that makes it beautiful to you? Let's try to get a, what is the definition of beauty? Why is something beautiful? Beauty is in the eyes of the other beholder. So what makes something beautiful to you? My grandkids. <laughs> okay. That's not answering the question, Mark. He says the grandkids are beautiful. Why? Joyce. Uh, okay, you find pleasure. It brings uh, pleasure what you see. Okay. What is it about it that brings pleasure to you? Okay, it reflects the Creator, all right? It's really a, hard, a difficult set, uh, question, isn't it? What is it that makes something beautiful to us? Character. Character, okay. Remember what um, what uh, David said in Psalm 27, 4, he says, 
Lord, there's one thing I ask of you, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now, wait just a minute. You know, he's not actually talking about being in the temple and seeing God. What's he, what does he mean when he says, what, when he says that God is beautiful, what does he mean by that? It's not a physical, it's not a physical uh, appearance. Okay, back to his character. Okay, that's, that's what's beautiful. All right, let me show you something that I, a new thing that I've been learning. Um, about seven or eight years ago, I was in the airport at DFW. I was getting ready to get on a plane and fly to, to uh, Beijing, China. I knew that was going to be about a 24-hour trip. And so I was trying to find something, like a, a book I could download on my, uh, on my phone. So I found one. And it was called uh, The Beauty of the Lord, uh, Aesthetics in Theology. All right, try to grab hold of that, Aesthetics in Theology. But this fellow, his name is Jonathan King, I think. Um, he wrote this book, and the whole book is about uh, the beauty of God. So I'm not going to tell you what he said yet. Look, look at this passage as an example um, in Mark 14. <clears throat> Mark uh, 14 verses 3 through 9 so this is a very familiar story Mark 14, verses 3 through 9. Who would read that for us? Anybody? Okay, Isabella. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of Kirinari, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Okay, thank you, Isabella. <clears throat> so everybody in the room except one, one person looked at what this woman did and said, this is ridiculous. There's nothing good about this. But how did Jesus describe it? <coughs> she has done a beautiful thing uh, to me. <clears throat> Why did he call that act beautiful? Kindness. Okay, showed her kindness. Mm -hmm. Worship. Yeah. Worship, okay. It was, it was extravagant, okay. What a year's worth, apparently, of, of a laborer's wage. Okay, she gave everything. All right. Because it was pleasing to him. Okay. It pleased him. <clears throat> well, here's what Jonathan King says about something that's beautiful. He uses the word uh, fittingness. Fittingness. Well, say that. Yeah. Fittingness. And, and notice uh, what Jesus says there. If, if you can kind of read that definition into that, he was saying what she's done is very fitting because she's anointed me for my, uh, for my burial. So think about that for a minute. And you can, you can plug this in when you think about uh, there's really kind of maybe two kinds of, of ways we define beauty. One is just that, just that aesthetic outward appearance. 
you know, we see the Grand Canyon or we see the plume of a uh, peacock or, and we just, you know, think that's beautiful. But the other, the, the other way to define beauty is uh, fittingness. When you see something that's working the right way or fulfilling its purpose the way it should, you say, boy, that is a beautiful whatever. Um, and we've been, I hope you've been watching some of these John 10.10 things. And we were watching one last night about the, the feather of a bird. I mean, it is a beautiful creation because it's perfectly fitted for what God intended it to be so the bird could fly. It's fittingness makes for beauty. Well, um, so for our last few minutes, I want you to see a couple of examples of this about the reason the Lord Jesus is beautiful and the gospel is wisdom is because of its fittingness. So look at... Uh, Look at um, Hebrews chapter 2. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 2. Now, um, of course, what, what the apostle, uh, the writer of Hebrews is doing, he's showing how Christ um, provides exactly what is needed for, uh, for, the, for salvation, for redemption. And of course, he compares him to Moses and Aaron and different, um, different Old Testament characters. But in, um, in chapter 2, he quotes, um, uh, he quotes Psalm 8, and his point is, that God made man to exalt him and to glorify him, but it hadn't worked. We don't see man exalted and glorified as we, <clears throat> as we thought that we would. Uh, so you see down in verse uh, 8, at the end of verse 8, at present we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So now he's saying, but God is a solution to this problem. That man failed in his role, you know, in the image of God, but now we have someone else that's come, then he's going to, he's going to restore all this and make it, make it all right. So look at verse 10. It was fitting. <clears throat> it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay, so what is it? what was it that was fitting? Just read that verse for yourself and discover it. What was it that was fitting that God would, that God would require of the Savior, of the Lord Jesus? Yeah, his suffering. Well, he had to become perfect through his suffering. And so he's talking about the incarnation, that Christ humbled himself and, and he became a complete man in identifying with us through his, uh, through his suffering. And the writer here says that was fitting. That was, the point was, that was, to accomplish salvation, that's what was required. That is what was what was fitting. And so we could put our definition here. Uh, the beauty of Christ is manifested because he, he, uh, uh, he, he humbled himself. He uh, suffered uh, so that he might identify with us and be our representative to bring salvation to us. It was fitting. And what, what Jonathan King does in this 400-page book, he starts at the beginning and shows how all through redemption history and, and, to the, uh, uh, and to the death and resurrection of Christ, that Christ was perfectly fitted to accomplish salvation. And, and it's so interesting because, um, because that is what wisdom is. Wisdom sees a need and fits the solution to meet the need. 
So I don't think I can pull all this together like I would like to. But as we think about wisdom, now you think about that, that, that the full orb idea of wisdom is the beauty of Christ in the gospel and restoring us to himself. And that's how we understand what, what wisdom is. Um, there's a couple. There's at least one other place in Hebrews that we could look at that talks about uh, the beauty, um, the beauty of Christ. But back to this point, uh, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Okay, um, when the, when Mary anointed Jesus' head, uh, some saw that as beautiful and some did not. And uh, but Jesus did. And I think the point I want to leave to us here is that uh, in the eyes of God, the Lord Jesus Christ is beautiful because he, he, um, because he was, he was the, because of his fittedness to accomplish salvation for us. And that is what wisdom is. Wisdom is seeing uh, how what God provides meets our needs, and the and the gospel does that. And so. <clears throat> um, I have a quote for you from this little this little book that I <clears throat> that I found to try to tie this this is that little book by Michael Reeves on what does it mean to fear the Lord and look at this quote that I found uh, from him the cross is the most fertile soil for the fear of God so now think about that for a minute we're talking about the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So, um, <clears throat> Michael Reeves says, the cross is the most fertile soil for the fear of God. Why? First, because the cross, by the forgiveness it brings, liberates us from sinful fear. But more than that, it also cultivates the most exquisite, fearful adoration of the Redeemer. For the grace of God serves as a breadcrumb trail, leading us up from the forgiveness itself uh, to the forgiver. So as we think about wisdom, I want to try to tie this all together for us. That, excuse me. <clears throat> that as we look, as we begin to study the wisdom of the Old Testament, and particularly Proverbs uh, next week, let's remember that the beginning of that wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And I think I like, I like what Michael Reeves says there that the best place, the best soil to cultivate the fear of the Lord is in the gospel at the foot of the cross. And so as we, as we stand or kneel in awe of what God has provided for us through Christ, we see the beauty of Christ because, because what he's provided fits exactly perfectly what we need. And, and God says he's beautiful, so we should see him as beautiful also. But as we do that, um, our awe and trembling before the Lord uh, is this fear of the Lord and that's the beginning of, of wisdom so <clears throat> today we've looked at uh, Christ is the final revelation of God because of his word and his, and his uh, redemption he was the wise Israelite that completely embodied wisdom and then became his word becomes the final word for wisdom um, Paul says that the wisdom of God is embodied in the gospel and then we see here finally that Jesus is beautiful because of his fittingness to accomplish salvation for us and as we observe that and as we uh, rejoice in it then our fear of God grows and that's the step that's the foundation for wisdom so, any other, any other word before we go? I didn't really give y'all lots of time to talk. I have a question. Yeah, it's been. Um, so, obviously, Proverbs is the book of wisdom, and I would assume you could say it's like the spot you would go to in the Bible to learn wisdom. Mm -hmm. But in light of Christ's kind of fulfillment of wisdom, do you think it's fair to say you're not getting a full picture of wisdom unless you're also pairing Proverbs with the New Testament? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Particularly the gospel. Yeah. <coughs> it's, 
I didn't uh, finish reading, but it, if you read into chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, you see that, that Paul says that this gospel has, been, has just now been revealed, the gospel of grace is just now being revealed. And we know that's what he's talking about because he said that if the rulers of this world would have understood that, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't realize it was through the, through the suffering and weakness and death of the Savior that, you know, that God's wisdom, that God's glory would be manifested. Uh, they didn't see it. So I think the, the, the gospel is the lens through which we must look at life, and particularly as we think about wisdom. The gospel, is, the gospel is how we, first of all, look at God and understand who He is. The gospel is how we look at ourselves to understand who we are. The gospel is how we look at one another to understand how to relate to other people. And the gospel is the lens that we look at to look at our circumstances, our difficulties, our suffering. And what I've just described to you is, is wisdom, how we look at God, how we look at ourselves, how we look at others, and how we look at... Uh, and our circumstances. So, drink from the gospel, and and let your heart be be ravished by what Christ has provided for us there, and that's the beginning of, of wisdom. Okay. Any other thought before we go? I'm looking forward to getting into Proverbs. It is an amazing book, and there's structure to it too. By the way, uh, you know Solomon didn't put it all together. I was going to say structure and order is one of the things I was going to say for seeing the beauty in something. It's the structure and yeah, order and, yeah. and seeing everything. And apparently some guys in Hezekiah's, Hezekiah's day put it all together. So it's, uh, anyway, we're going to enjoy uh, getting there. Well, thank you. See you next week. Thank you.